Let's read our text again from Luke 23. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged reeled at him, saying, if, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sense of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said unto him, Truly I, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. What are you like under pressure? Are you the sort of person that thrives under the weight of expectations? The more eyes that are on you, the more people that need you to come through or everything falls apart, is that something that excites you? Or would you far rather just go about your business privately, quietly? What about the pressure when things go wrong? When screens stop working and wires stop working? And what happens then? Are you the sort of person who stays calm and collected and methodically works through the problem? Or do you just go straight to panic? Reacting instinctively, just doing things. The first thing that comes into your mind, it's all about gut feeling. Do you, or do you react by, by lashing out? Uh, I, I tend to do that sometimes. I, I get angry, and then I, I look to blame someone, and then I put the anger towards them. It gives me someone to be angry towards. Now, I know I shouldn't do that, but that's my default reaction. That's my battle. That's my fight. But that's, that's my uh, reaction, especially when I'm under pressure. Especially when I'm under pressure. Are you someone who will fight against the flow under pressure or cave and, and go with the flow? Well, what's everyone else doing? How's everyone else dealing with this? Well, I'll just go about it that way. I'll fall in the line. When we come to our scripture tonight, the lens of the cross widens just a little bit. And it seems strange because just like the interaction with Barabbas, Luke takes the focus off Christ on one of the most important days of his ministry. I say one of the most important, the day that he died, because really the most important is the day that he rose again. That's the most important day, the day of the resurrection. But on this day that he dies, surely all the focus should be on him. All the attention should be on him. And yet, just like Barabbas, Luke widens this lens just a little bit to show us that there's other people involved. There's other people there that day. And these people, in different ways, represent us. We have so much that we could learn from. These people were real people, but they're pictures of who we are and the roles that we also play in the story and how we can be impacted by what Christ is doing for us on the cross. And in doing so, we're presented with two men who react very differently under the pressure of coming to terms with their own mortality, with their own deaths. 
Now, I think it's no accident, no accident at all that Christ is executed in between these two criminals. Because they both have the exact same opportunity to hear what Jesus is saying. They both have the same opportunity to speak to Jesus. They have the same opportunities to cry out to him, the same chance. But they both react in two different ways. Even before the cross, they seem to have a very similar life path. Both would be violent men who seem to be guilty of a judging by the language, judging by how, how severe their sentencing was. It was probably robbery, homicide, where they were robbing people and then uh, probably led to someone's death, maybe a couple. They're not the silent creep into your uh, house at night, cat burglars. These are aggressive, violent men. We, the fact that they're being crucified tells us how serious their crimes were. Which tells me that these two men, they can have the same path, the same direction, be almost <laughs> the same person in so many ways. And you have two very different reactions when it comes to Jesus. So it's possible for, for two people to be here tonight, to hear the same sermon, and to have uh, someone else and have a very different reaction to them. So maybe you're here tonight, and your attitude already is, oh, why did I tell my mom I come to church tonight? Why? <laughs> And others are saying, tell me more about the cross. I don't think I fully get it, but tell me more. One thief joins in the mocking, and he is angry, and he is bitter, and he lashes out at Jesus, while the other thief breaks his heart and cries out for forgiveness. And so this gives us our second word tonight. The first this morning was forgiveness. But this is now the, the word of salvation. The actual asking for and receiving of that forgiveness. This morning we looked at how forgiveness was made available. Tonight we're looking at how this man received that forgiveness. Under the pressure of realizing that they were about to die, the differences between these two men start to, start to emerge. First of all, there's the difference in their demeanor. I just said that they were saying different things, but I wonder... What would two people from the same social background, the same social circle, the same political opinion, same criminal intent, the same, why would they react so differently? Why? Well, let's look closer at what they said. One of the criminals who were hanged reeled at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. You see, it would seem that what you think about God really comes through whenever you're under pressure. When you're under pressure, how you really think about God starts to come through. And now that's always been the case. That's always been the case. How much you really trust Him is revealed under pressure. How much you really love Him is revealed under pressure. How much you really want to trust His promises is revealed when you're under pressure. How unashamed of Him you are is really revealed whenever you're under pressure. And in this extreme case, one man was able to say that he was a sinful man deserving of his punishment and the other couldn't have cared less. Now, that describes so many people's attitudes towards Jesus, doesn't it? We, 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 most of the people that we know, if not every person that we know, could fit into one of two categories. They either 
recognize the reality of their sin or they don't. Now, there might be some people who are very close in one category to getting into the other, <laughs> either way, but, but they're in one category or not. They, either they might recognize that they're a sinner, but they maybe don't recognize the full reality of it. Or, or even as a Christian, they might be allowing sin to fester in their lives and they don't see the true danger of it. But we can put them, everyone, into one of two categories. Either they know how dangerous their sin is and they know the reality of the danger of their sin, or they don't. Now, Romans 3 reminds us that it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. It doesn't matter if you've grown up in church or whether this is the very first time you've ever seen a Bible or seen these Bible verses. Because it says that there's no difference. No difference between religious Jewish people and non-religious Gentile people. It makes no difference. All of sin and falling short of the glory of God. Oh, you and me, we've all sinned. So how does this happen? Well, God has created us to worship. We are designed to be worshipers. We are all worshiping people. The, the reality is, though, that we're designed to worship God, but that's not always what happens. We, we so often get, uh, we hijack that desire in ourselves and begin putting that on other stuff. So there's people and they will worship money. There's people and they will worship sex. There's people who will worship themselves and their freedom and their independence and their freestyling thinking. Uh, and they worship so many different things. And by our action, what we say is, God, I'm better at being God than you are in my life. I'm better at making decisions that suit me and bring me happiness and bring me joy and bring me contentment than you are. So I'm going to make the decisions. I'm going to be God for me. You just take a back seat. And then in defiance, we threaten to write him out of the history books altogether that if he, if he won't do things our way, then we'll not believe in him anymore. And how often have we heard someone say that? It says, well, I don't think I believe in God anymore they're not getting their way. That somehow if he doesn't relinquish some sort of power to us or control to us, that we'll stop coming to church. That'll show him. But not to worry, God, because hey, when it all goes belly up and when you live like that, it always goes belly up at some point. We'll come running back. We'll demand that you fix it for us because hey, if you love us, that's what you'll do. Because God, don't you love me? You said you did. Why won't he do that for me if he says he loves me? And this is how we live our lives. And so scripture says, look, but we've all done this to some level. We've all done this to some extent. We've all tried to be God instead of God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the standard that he sets. So we're thieves. We are thieves. We're not just like the thieves in this passage. We are thieves like these uh, men in the passage because we have robbed God of his glory. We've robbed God of the position that he deserves to have in our life. We've robbed him of our love and our affection and our worship that he created us to give him. So we're exactly like these two men dying either side of Jesus. And the truth is, not everyone will see it like that. Not everyone will see it in the same way. With crosses on necklaces and on our Facebook pages. 
but there wouldn't be ornaments, or, ornamental back in the first century. That wasn't the kind of thing they did. They didn't put them on cards. They didn't bake them on cakes. That's not how it was. The cross was a symbol of the cruelest way you could kill someone, and it was reserved for the worst of the worst, for barbarians and for slaves. And so they used it as a way of making an example of someone. Leave them out there to hang and show them what the might of Rome can do in tearing someone down. And so what happens is that to, to have a cross associated with you was a great shame, was a great humility to be crucified. And which is why Jesus, whenever he said, if anyone wants to follow me, they have to pick up their cross and follow me. That was huge. That was huge. He says, if you want to follow me, it's going to take humility. It's actually going to take a willingness to be ashamed. It's going to take a willingness to, to have people point and laugh and ridicule. And yet our only hope in this life is a man who died on such a cross between two criminals. Think about it. Think how radically ridiculous this is for people who haven't grown up in church. Okay, let, let, let me try and give you the example. You take the average person from Northern Ireland with a nice job, nice car, nice house, maybe some nice holiday plans for the summer, um, nice family, and you take his nice wife, who is a nice, free-thinking woman who values her independence and values her equality, and you take them both into the city dump, and you take them just out of sight of civilized people, and you show this nice man and this nice woman a cross. And on that cross, there's a naked, dying, bloody refugee. And you say to this nice man, and you say to the nice woman in the dump, watching this man say that unless you believe that this dying man is God, who's all-powerful, who can do all things, and unless you accept him as your savior and your judge, you're going to have no hope in this life. You tell him that eternity is determined by your response to this man. This man on the cross. That man, that woman will laugh. They will roll their eyes and at best they will feel sorry for the suffering of that man. Their heart will be moved in sympathy for the suffering of that man. Of course it will be, but they will not bow the knee to that man. It's far too crazy for him. And yet, how is it then that so many people will look at the cross like one criminal and mock him in bitterness and anger, and yet there's another man who, like many of you and like me, will see the power of the cross and see that God so loved the world, he gave us his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That God would demonstrate his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. That he would love us and send his son to be an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation for our sins. Or, or, or uh, I think Galatians 2 is up here. Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 
So here's the difference, folks, between these two men. One cannot see the depth of his sin. It's all just craziness to him, and yet the other sees it and knows it and sees that even though he is guilty, he might yet still have hope. A difference in their demeanor. There was an attitude difference towards Jesus. But there was a difference in their decision. The second thief doesn't get sucked in by the goading. Why don't you just get off your cross and do something about the suffering? The second thief, I think, can see that by staying where he is, Jesus is doing something for their suffering. But it's a lazy argument, but I think there's a, it's an argument that a lot of Christians struggle to maybe argue with because there is power to it. There is a, um, a sentiment behind it. You know, if God is so good and loving then why did those teenagers die in, in Cookstown on St. Patrick's Day? If God is so good, then why are so many Africans starving? If God is good, if he really does care, then why uh, was my family torn apart? You see the power in those arguments, of course, don't you? You understand why people struggle to wrestle them, but there are answers to the questions. Because their theory is that God should swoop in each and every time circumstances get hard. That he should swoop in and change the outcome every time. Something terrible happens, he should swoop down in, like, like Superman, like, like the superheroes in the comic books, and he should swoop in and save the day every day, every time, everywhere. That people should be allowed to keep on making a mess, and the sovereign God of the universe becomes our cosmic housekeeper clearing up the messes that we make each and every day. I put it to you that there's a better way. Would it not be a far more elegant solution for God to swoop down once and make it possible to change the people instead of changing the circumstances? Think about it. That he would be able to change the people who hoard up food in the West so that a world that does produce enough food might distribute that food more evenly or at least recompense the people who grow that food more fairly. Or that he would change people that they would take charge of scenarios that are dangerous and think of others before themselves so that they don't need drugs and alcohol to satisfy at a club or a party just to try and make a few extra pounds. Or that he would change people so that they would love and cherish their spouse and be devoted parents so that families would stay together. Wouldn't it be a better solution if God was more interested in changing people than just changing our circumstances? Yet this is what he achieved by the cross. We are sinful and broken and way off being perfect. But if God could forgive us, if God could forgive us, he could begin perfecting us by producing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That forgiven people would learn how to forgive. That forgiven people would begin to live lives of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and tenderness and goodness and faithfulness and long-suffering. If people weren't motivated by greed, but by the glory and the love of God, what a different world this world would be. So maybe God has provided a way where this world can become a better way. It is only one way, but 
isn't one way enough? Isn't one way enough? We have all sinned and fallen short of that standard that is set for us to be in relationship with God. But our great problem is that the sin that separates us from God is the same problem that means that we cannot bridge the gap between us and God. Our sin is the problem, and it's also the barrier that will always be a problem. We're not just down, we're out. It's not about trying harder or making some changes. We can't fix this problem of sin by ourselves because we're not perfect. We are the problem. We are the problem. So enter grace. Enter Christ. God's one way. It's not giving us what we deserve. And yet at the same time, Christ is taking the punishment for the sin he did not commit. God's love and holiness in beautiful, beautiful harmony mercy and justice displayed on the cross. <coughs> First Peter 3. Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To make us happy all the time? No. To make us rich? To make us healthy? To make us Facebook perfect people? No. I talked about this this morning. He did it so that he might bring us to God. God is the reward. These two thieves on the cross deserved what they got. Even if only one of them acknowledges that. But the punishment for our rebellion is also death. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. But Hebrews 9 also tells us that there can't be any forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Such is the seriousness of our sin. We don't appreciate how serious it is. We are guilty thieves who have robbed God of his glory and who deserve punishment. Yet at the same time we see in Christ dying, we see someone who was not guilty, who did not have that chasm between him and the Father in heaven. And so he's able to stand in the gap for us and bridge that gap whereby we can come through him to the Father. That through him we might have forgiveness. That through him we might be known by him the righteous for the unrighteous. That we would trade our, our, our robes of our filthy rags of effort and trying and failing and messing up time and time again and be clothed in righteousness. Two thieves, two decisions. One rejected him because they couldn't understand why Jesus would just hang there whenever he could have done something to save him. Yet the other thief accepted him because he understood that that is what was happening as Jesus was hanging there. By dying on the cross, he understood that Christ was taking his place. Different demeanor, different decision as we finish, different destiny. What could that thief do other than plead? 
there was no opportunity to fix up his life. He couldn't go around making amends or giving money back or trying to apologize to families of those victims that he had perhaps beaten or, or killed. There was no opportunity to learn theology. There was no opportunity to get baptized or go to communion or, or church or anything. All he had was the promise that Jesus gave to him. Today, you will be with me in paradise. That is all he had. Isn't it funny, though, how a man so evil, so bad, so broken, so valueless to society, still gets so much more than he bargained for with God? He simply says, Lord, just remember me. Just remember me. Just be thinking about me. Have me somewhere in your thoughts that I won't be forgotten by God. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You're going to be with me. I'm not going to forget about you because you're going to come with me. You're going to be with me in paradise. Jesus was enough. And we're picking up on that theme this morning. And unsurprisingly, it will come up a couple of times in this series. But what we said this morning was that this great reward of the gospel is not stuff. It's not money or health. It's the promise. You will be with me. You will be with me. You will have me. You'll be with me. It's not that you'll get off the cross. It's not that you'll live another 20 years here in Jerusalem. It's not that we're going to get rid of the Roman soldiers, but rather in eternity we'll have each other. And that's better. Now maybe someone will say here, like, Jeff, hold on, hold, hold on. So this guy gets the same reward as me. And yet I've been saved a lifetime and I've had to be going to church for a lifetime and doing all these things for a lifetime. Yeah. Even though he's undeserving. Well, yeah, we're all undeserving. But that's not fair. Too right it's not unfair. Too right it's not fair. Because fair would be that we all get hell. That would be fair. The only hope we have is Jesus on the cross. But the truth is that we are so desperate to try and change the rules <coughs> to something that makes getting saved a wee bit easier, that makes getting saved that wee bit more comfortable, that makes getting saved something a wee bit more palatable to us, that involves us, that depends on us, because we love being in control. We love being uh, part of that, don't we? And so we'll maybe say it's Jesus plus being a good guy. It's Jesus plus being a good woman. It's Jesus plus going to church. It's Jesus plus charity. It's Jesus by being plus being some boy scout. I grew up in a church mentality that where it was never explicitly taught, it was never taught from the front, but by how people were acting and how people behaved, it was implied. Do, do, do. If you're a Christian, then you'll do this. If you're a Christian, then you'll do this and say this and be this and wear this and talk like this. And this is what a Christian has to be. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. And yet, religion says do. But the cross says don't. All the things that we do 
they are good biblical things and they are helpful things and they are beneficial things and there's reasons why we should do them. But they're not gospel things. They are not the grounds of our hope. They are not the grounds of our assurance. They are not the grounds for our salvation. Look at the dying thief on the cross. All he had was that cry from his heart, remember me. And all he had was the promise of, a fa of, a, of Jesus that today you will be with me. And it was enough. It was enough. No tipping the scales and balance. No making uh, uh, reparations. And Jesus doesn't just say, look, today you'll be in paradise. Today you, you'll have all those things that you'll want. The whole point of this is that he'll have the Savior. Today you'll be with me. You'll be with me in, in paradise. Now what can sometimes happen when you're talking to someone is that they'll maybe say something like, you know, I'd rather live my life my way. I'd rather go to the parties. I'd rather do the stuff that I want to do. I'd rather do, and then I'll get right with God later. I'll do it later. Whenever I'm in my, my 20s, I'll do it whenever I get a family. I'll do it whenever I've settled down. I'll do it whenever I get through my job. I'll do it when I retire. I'll do it whenever I'm finished playing golf. I will do it later at some point. I'll just do it on my deathbed like this guy did. Without even getting into all the facts about how that would be a life that is wasted. Because a life lived for God is full and abundant. Even apart from the fact that there's no guarantees that you'll be conscious of having that deathbed moment. It's worth pointing out to you, this is the only deathbed confession that we have in all the scripture. This is the only one that we have in all the scripture. And as someone once said, we have one so that we can have hope, but only once, so we don't make assumptions. Here's the question that everyone needs to ask. The question that you need to ask yourself this evening. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Waiting for the right time? Scripture says now is the right time. You're, you're waiting for the right feeling. You're waiting for the sort of tingle up your spine or goosebumps on your arm. This isn't about feelings. This is about what is true. You're waiting to have all the answers. You may never have all the answers. You might never know all the reasons why things happened in your life the way that they did, apart from the fact that we are sinful people and our world is desperately broken. You may not have all the answers, but you have enough of the answers. You are a sinner. You need a savior. Jesus died that you would be saved. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that you, he might bring us, he, he might bring you to God. He's more interested in changing you than changing your circumstances. And he wants to change you. And you know what? That will change how you see your circumstances. So my question, what are you waiting for? 
how about answering this one? Could you say with confidence, as bad as your situation may be, as bad as your circumstances may be, as bad as the baggage and the scars that you may have and carry with you, could you say, if it ended today, today I'll be with him in paradise. Can you say that for absolute certainty, I know, I absolutely know in my heart if it happened today, and today I'd be with him. I'd be absent from the body and present with the Lord. We're going to bow our heads and we're going to pray. I'm just going to leave it quiet for a minute or two. And ha- have a thought a- about what you've heard, folks. Where are you with God? Are you bluffing yourself? Are you putting it all on reciting a wee prayer maybe? But there hasn't really been a change. There hasn't been that joy. There hasn't been that growth. There hasn't been that. Maybe it's all new. And for the first time, it's maybe starting to make sense. And in these moments, I want you to pray. And like that guy on the cross, it shows that it doesn't have to be fancy or, you know, Shakespearean poetry here that you produce. All you need from the depths of your heart is to say, Lord, I know I am a sinner. And I know what I deserve. But I know that Jesus died for me. I want him as my savior. I want that forgiveness. I want that peace with you. God has promised that whoever comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. So come to him tonight. If you want to talk to me about some of the questions you may have or something that I said then come and speak to me there's absolutely no problem my job is to make this as clear as possible and if I've only raised more questions then I'm more than happy to sit down with you and and go through with that but let's just bow our heads now and pray Heavenly Father I pray that in the midst of all what has been said tonight that you will have been speaking 